I'll bring greetings from Bethany Gospel Chapel in Hamilton. Uh, I'm a full-time worker there. And as Mike was saying, we're headed to Galilee this week, uh, tag teaming with Peter Bolton for family camp. So very much looking forward to that and very grateful for your hospitality, for the invitation to be together, uh, particularly enjoyed considering uh, Jesus again, remembering the Lord with you this morning already. We're going to go to Genesis chapter 27. We're going to look a little bit at uh, what I've titled the gospel according to Jacob. This is um, seeing truths about Christ through the story of the life of Jacob. Let's begin to read together at uh, Genesis chapter 27, verse 18. And before we do that, let's invite God to minister to us by his word again. Father, we are so very grateful for this time set aside for us to come apart with your people to sing your praise to remember your son, to hear from your word, to take bread and wine together, to be uh, knit together, reminded of all the things uh, that you have done for us. God, we just ask this morning that you would help us with our posture in relation to your word. We ask that you would help us to trust you, to place our confidence in you, to submit ourselves to the things that you have to say, to see things your way to hear your voice and be quick to do the things that you say. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Genesis chapter 27, begin with me at verse 18. So he went to his father and said, my father. And he said, here I am. Who are you, my son? Jacob said to his father, I am Esau, your firstborn. I've done as you told me. Now sit up and eat some of my game that your soul um, that your soul may bless me. But Isaac said to his son, how is it that you found it so quickly, my son? He answered, because the Lord your God granted me success. Then Isaac said to Jacob, please come near that I may feel you, my son, to know whether you are really my son Esau or not. So Jacob went near to Isaac, his father, who felt him and said, The voice is Jacob's voice, but the hands are the hands of Esau. And he did not recognize him because his hands were hairy like his brother Esau's hands. So he blessed him. He said, Are you really my son Esau? He answered, I am. Then he said, Bring it near me so that I may eat of my son's game and bless you. So he brought it near to him. And he ate, and he brought him wine, and he drank. Then his father Isaac said to him, Come near and kiss me, my son. So he came near and kissed him. And Isaac smelled the smell of his garments and blessed him and said, See, the smell of my son is as the smell of a field that the Lord has blessed. May God give you of the dew of heaven and of the fatness of the earth and plenty of grain and wine. Let people serve you and nations bow down to you. Be Lord over your brothers and may your mother's sons bow down to you. Cursed be everyone who curses you 
and blessed be everyone who blesses you. As soon as Isaac had finished blessing Jacob, when Jacob had scarcely gone out from the presence of Isaac, his father, Esau, his brother, came in from his hunting. He also prepared delicious food and brought it to his father. And he said to his father, let my father arise and eat of his son's game that you may bless me. His father Isaac said to him, who are you? He answered, I am your son, your firstborn, Esau. Then Isaac trembled very violently and said, Who was it then that hunted game and brought it to me? And I ate it all before you came, and I have blessed him. Yes, and he shall be blessed. As soon as Esau heard the words of his father, he cried out with an exceedingly great and bitter cry and said to his father, Bless me, even me also, my father. This is God's word. So we have this incredible story. Um, one of the reasons I, I think it's so uh, exciting to be unpacking this portion of scripture with you is just how, uh, how wonderfully it's narrated to us. The, the narrator um, gives us such a beautiful picture, sometimes in such economy of style, uh, a few words will, will will speak all kinds of volumes. But not only is this a powerful and fascinating story, but it's also uh, an essential lens through which we can understand uh, what it is to know Jesus. I I have said in, in considering this series that um, Jacob is the postmodern patriarch he's he's the anti-hero where we're amazed at this story in part because the narrator doesn't even seem to like jacob there's so little to recommend him and yet god chooses him god loves him god um uh, creates a nation through him we see that there's this powerful thing happening And I think this chapter is really getting at an idea that's maybe a little bit hard for us in our culture to get our heads around. I think this chapter is about blessing. Three ways we'll look at this idea of blessing. First, we'll see in chapter 27, the power of blessing. And secondly, our need for blessing. Thirdly, we can understand how to get it. How do we get this blessing that we need? The, the really powerful thing about this story is this idea um, of the, the desperation, the incredible ambition, the drive that Jacob has to pursue blessing. And I think in our culture, from our particular standpoint, it's very hard for us to understand how it can be that Jacob and Rebecca and then eventually Esau are so motivated and animated by this idea. But it's important for us to understand that this is a family that is not, this is, these are not just the normal struggles of primogeniture in a culture of placing uh, most of the inheritance on the first son. These are not just nice words said at a parent's bedside close to their death. There's a power here. There's a thing that's being pursued. This is a family that's been promised something. 
They have a covenant that comes from Abraham to Isaac and through to Jacob. And so there's this sense in which who gets the blessing? Who's the one that carries the promise? Who's the who's the seed through which God's blessing will ultimately flow? It's so pivotal. And Jacob and Rebekah and Esau, they all see it and they all are incredibly animated by it. This is, would be a fascinating subject in any family, but think of the particular history of this family. The first promise, the covenant coming to Abraham, and then in his old age, um, unsure of how the promise of God will be fulfilled, trying to fulfill it himself through his wife's concubine, and then that, uh, that um, rivalry between Ishmael and Isaac, who will carry the promise, who is the son of the covenant. And then in the next generation, we get this fascinating idea. Who is the firstborn when you have twins? Who is, who's the son of promise when sons are born at the same time? Who's the son of the covenant? In uh, the Prince of Egypt's sort of fictional rendering of the story of Moses, there's this chariot race scene where Ramses is interacting with Moses and they're racing together. And Ramses says, second born, second place. And we have to understand that this is the driving feature of Jacob's personality. This is fundamentally who he is. He's a man who's ambitious, is climbing, is wanting, is needing something. The blessing that he's chasing it's a big deal. I think, as I said, that it's hard for us to understand quite how big. One of the things, one of the ways that we can know that this blessing is something so significant is that everyone in the story seems to believe that once it's been given, that it's irrevocable, right? When Esau comes running in and discovers that Jacob has gone before him, he says, oh, father, can't you bless me too? Isn't there anything left for me? Rebecca and Jacob seem to think that the blessing is irrevocable as well because they're making this plan. They're concocting this scheme, knowing full well that eventually it will be discovered. Jacob is not going to dress up as Esau as impersonating his brother for the rest of his days. They know at some point it will be discovered, but they have this sense, they have this belief that once those words are spoken, that there's a power, that there is um, something significant happening, an authority being given that cannot be recalled. You can't just say it again differently for the other son. That's why there's desperation here. That's why Esau is saying, bless me too. Sometimes I think we have a tendency in our culture to understate, to undervalue the power of words. One of, one of the most famous sayings in our culture is, um, sticks and stones may break my bones, but words, names will never hurt me. Sometimes I wonder if anything could be further from the truth. Words are so powerful. They have such power to, to mold and to shape. In this culture, we see in this picture that words have meaning, that names have meaning. 
not like my name. My whole life, I have thought about how silly it is, the meaning of my name. I remember when I discovered it, it was so anticlimactic, meeting all these kids at school and you say, oh, your name's so-and-so, what does that mean? It means mighty warrior that will conquer the world, or it means beautiful daughter who will be treasured. And what does your name mean, Graham? It means lives in a gray house. Totally incidental, hypothetical, not even true in my case. Live in a white house. You can't find me based on my name. In our culture, we, we try to act like words don't really mean anything. You just water off a duck's back. Just brush it off. But this is not the case. Uh, it, it's maybe one thing that these ancients had over us. They seem to understand the power of words, the power of names. Think about it in Jacob's life. He gets names for this trait. He comes out of the womb grabbing his brother's heel, and his name means grabber, grasper, chaser, ambitious. And not only that, but because of this episode, because of the lengths that he and his mother, Rebecca, go to steal the blessing, to lie to his father, to deceive the one whom he's hoping will give him blessing, in the, in the Hebrew, the, the name, uh, the, 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 the words, the phrase, he grasps the heel, it became an idiom, a way of saying that someone was a liar. To grab the heel is to tell a lie, to be a deceiver. Kids, it's like saying that's cap, right? If you say someone grabs the heel, it's, they're, they're telling you things that are not true. So Jacob is known forever. His reputation, the thing that precedes him is that he's a liar, that he's a thief. And imagine that he's receiving blessing. It's so it's so incredibly, I mean, this story, it, it just rocks us in a certain way. We, we tend to minimize it, as I say. We don't understand the power of blessing. In the South, uh, folks will say, oh, bless her heart. Bless your heart. Just as a sort of God bless you after you sneeze, that kind of thing. We don't always invest it with the meaning that it actually has. But actual blessing. I mean, if you have had someone of spiritual import in your life, bless you. Take time to consider what it is that God is doing in your life and speak those true things over you to in encourage you. It's an incredibly powerful thing. It's, it's essentially unforgettable. I was thinking that even when it's done poorly, even when it's sort of a, a false version, it has this power I remember when I was a younger man, I was working at a summer camp, Joy Bible Camp in Bancroft. And I was serving in a bunch of capacities. And I remember that the speaker for the week, he sent me this card after the week of camp. And it was just a handwritten card mentioning some of the things that he saw God was doing in my life and trying to bless me. And afterwards, I found out that that was not a particularly unique experience that he had sent cards like that to many young leaders and maybe had a little bit of a tendency to try and entice those people away from the congregations they were serving in towards his congregation. So I, I began to feel like there might have been an ulterior motive there. 
But even so, I can remember those words to this day. The turn of phrase, the way he said things, precisely because blessing has such power in our lives. And the reason is that we have a deep need for this. The reason that Jacob is going to these lengths, the reason that Esau is undone by the idea that he, I mean, think about earlier in the story, he's trading his birthright for a bowl of soup. But here, when he comes to understand that the blessing has gone to his brother, he unravels. He's overcome by despondency, by hatred and rage. He wants to kill his brother. He's just waiting until dad goes, until dad dies, so he can get him back. It's because we need blessing. This picture of a family made dysfunctional by this need, by a disordered way of pursuing this necessity, it should help us to see how important this is, the reason that we're so desperate. Think about the favoritism that becomes generational, right? Isaac has his favorite, his favorite's Esau. And so Rebecca, maybe in a reactionary way, takes on her favorite, who is Jacob. And then even Jacob, who learns this lesson throughout his life, he still favors his wife, Rachel, over his wife, Leah. And then he favors his son, Joseph, over all of his other sons. And it's because of this need for blessing the need to know that we are affirmed and approved of, that we are accepted, that we are beloved to those who matter. Genesis chapter 25 says it like this. It's this, oh, I'm in charge of the slides. Sometimes I'm bad at this technology stuff. Genesis 25 says, the boys grew up and Esau became a skillful hunter a man of the open country, while Jacob was content to stay at home among the tents. Isaac, who had a taste for wild game, loved Esau, but Rebecca loved Jacob. It's this totally dysfunctional situation. And I want to suggest to you that though we don't hopefully have these extremes in our family dynamics, that we've all got some of this going on because we need blessing, but we can't give it well. Look at Isaac uh, he's wanting to bless his son Esau, withholding love from Jacob. It's driving Jacob's life. His, his wife, Rebecca, is seeing it and she is angry about it and wants to push Jacob forward. We also can't receive blessing well. There's a part of us that knows at some level that we're not fully worthy of it. And so we resort to being like Jacob, blessing grabbers, blessing stealers, trying by hook or by crook to get things, this important thing, the wrong way. I think so often this is why we put on facades. This is why social media is such a driver of dysfunctional behavior, why we create personas and avatars, why we set up ourselves as imposters like Jacob, right? We want to show those who we hope will bless us 
the side that we, that we know they want to see, right? Jacob is there putting on goat skin with his mother to trick his blind and dying father because he's so desperate to hear the words, son, you'll be blessed. Son, I love you. Son, have the place of priority. May God do things in your life. We have this need to be something that we're not. And so we are chasing it. We need, uh, the reason social media is such a trap is that we need the likes. I remember the first time that I discovered that this was a currency for the students in my youth group in a way that it wasn't for me. We were on a family vacation out West. And as you do, when you stop at Lake Louise, you take a picture and it's this fascinating place. I don't know if you've been, there's tourists as far as the eye can see. It's like, there are people absolutely everywhere, but there's this convention and courtesy of when you're about to take your little picture to post on Instagram, everybody gets out of the way. And so it looks like, wow, look at your family alone in front of that turquoise grandeur. It's, and it is, it's a beautiful place. And so unlike my normal uh, way of operating, I actually posted the picture. I don't know. I don't normally post a lot of things. I rarely post pictures of our family. And so what happened was everybody that knew us was like, oh, there's a picture of, and I have a, a really lovely family. And so it, they, there were, they were very excited to show their, their love and approval. And I remember we came home from this vacation and I was interacting with some young men in my youth group. And eventually somewhere in the conversation, they stopped me and said, Graham, we need to understand. How did you get 250 likes on one picture? And I was like, guys, I had no idea how many likes were on that picture. Like, that's not a thing for me. That's not currency for me. That's not oxygen for me in the way that it seems to be for you. I knew, I knew the girls in my youth group were wrestling with this, this sort of like posting pictures and telling each other, oh, you're such a 10, gorgeous, I love you. You're fire, honey. Like all saying to each other, these words that are so over the top, just because everybody is chasing this approval. And so we'll say almost anything to each other in order to get it. But I didn't realize that the fellas we're struggling in quite the same way. And I, I, came to, I came to think, man, oh man, this is, this is who we are. This is so key to our struggle with identity because we can, we can look back at this culture and say, man, oh man, primogeniture, uh, prioritizing the sons over the daughters, this patriarchy, that's messed up. But what we've replaced it with, it's not any better. In our culture, we just say, just love yourself, right? You don't, need, you don't need anyone to tell you who cares what anybody else thinks. Self-esteem is the ticket. But the problem is that that's not really blessing, right? We know at some level that we're just saying words to ourselves in the dark that we're not, it's not true. You see, the issue is that the thing we fundamentally need, the thing, the deep down uh, thing that Jacob is chasing, that he's pursuing like a thirsty man in the desert looking for water, is what the scholars call the praise of the praiseworthy. To have the affirmation of a voice that actually matters. 
someone who would really know, someone who is worthwhile. We need to hear that. We need what Jesus got at his baptism. Remember, heaven opens and the voice of the Father says over him as the Spirit is alighting on him, this is my son whom I love. I'm pleased with him. That's what we're chasing. That's what we have this need for. You see, this is the fundamental problem for Jacob. He gets it. He gets to hear the words that he hoped his father would say his whole life. The thing that he has been desperately pursuing all this time. He got what he'd always dreamed of, but it doesn't help. Because he knows at some level that it was never really for him, that it had to be a ruse, that it it had to be a trick. He still knows that Isaac loves Esau best. You see, in his culture, to be mom's favorite, it's great, but it's not enough. To be the second son, to never, to never be the one, it's, it's undoing him. But not only that, if we look at the story carefully, we'll see not only does Jacob's life unravel at this point. Remember, the next chapter, he's on the run in the desert no, with no one he knows with nothing to eat, with no sleeping bag. He's putting his head on a rock for a pillow. That's how uh, broken apart his life is. But it's not only him. Everyone's life falls apart. Esau, who is the prioritized son, who gets the secondary blessing from Isaac, he's on a rampage. He's just biding his time, seething, waiting for the day that he can visit vengeance on his brother. Or think about Rebecca. She never sees the son that she loves again. By the time that Jacob returns with his wives to encounter Esau later on in in Genesis, Rebecca has died. She's gone. And so she never sees any of the fulfillment of this promise that she was trying to bring about by hook or by crook. Uh, We see this despondent, desperate family that's broken apart even as Jacob gets what he was always chasing. So the question for us is, if blessing is so powerful and if we need it so desperately, how can we get it? Now, I think that there's a risk here of taking a superficial lesson. The, the sort of straightforward reading would be, okay, just be better parents. Don't choose favorites. Don't do this to your children. And that's incredibly true. That's an important lesson. The idea of trying to love different people, being a person with a temperament who's different than other people, well, is incredibly hard. This is difficult for parents to do. But... I think there's a deeper lesson here. There's a bigger truth because the question is, what about those who are, who have already been messed up in this way, right? We can't, if, if you're a parent, you know of examples in your life where you think, I didn't love my kids the way that I should have in that situation, or I prioritized uh, the well-being and the, 
the valuing of one child over another in that scenario, or I, I failed to, there's such different people, I failed to love them as well as I could, and that's already gone. And we also see that these things always have generational effects. I mean, we can apologize, we can try to make things right and offer forgiveness, but what about those of us who are already messed up? How do, how do we get blessing? It's not just about good parents, or even more so, what about those of us who have essentially perfectly good parents and are still chasing blessing in this intense way, right? We've had love and affirmation showered over us, but somehow still at the core, we haven't been transformed by it. There's a lesson in the chapter, in the portion that we read about how it is that we get blessing. And I think the best way to see it is to look at this way that Isaac operates at the end of the chapter. There's a really strange turn in his commentary when he's talking to Esau. When Esau bursts in looking for the blessing and Isaac discovers what Jacob and Rebekah have done, he's irate. Just like Esau, he's so angry at having been um, deceived, at having been pushed around and coerced into doing something he didn't intend to do. And yet, as he's talking to Esau, there's this turn in verse 33, and he says something fascinating. Isaac's in the... Once again, the slide will not advance if I don't do it. Genesis chapter 27 Oh, maybe I went one too far. Oh, forgive me. What we discover is that, that Isaac relents. In, in verse 33, though he's irate, though he's talking about how angry he is at what Jacob has done, he says he will be blessed. Though this has happened, I've given my blessing. God is going to do something with his life, and I'm admitting it. And what we see here is that Isaac has his own wrestle with God that he's been contending with. You see, when Rebecca had these twins contending inside her, and when she gave birth and the younger son was grasping after, she, she went to a prophet when she had this um, contentious pregnancy, and the prophet said to her, the older will serve the younger. Genesis chapter 25, verses 21 to 23 says it like this. Isaac prayed to the Lord on behalf of his wife because she was childless. And the Lord answered his prayer and his wife, Rebekah, became pregnant. The babies jostled each other within her. And she said, why is this happening to me? So she went to inquire of the Lord and the Lord said to her, Two nations are in your womb, and two peoples from within you will be separated. One people will be stronger than the other, and the older will serve the younger. So Isaac knows this prophecy. He's known for the boy's whole lives. That God, the word that God has spoken is that the older will serve the younger. Whatever, whatever Isaac's preference is, whether he likes hunters over shepherds, whether he likes rough 
and rugged and ruddy men over softer men who like to stay among the tents, whether he likes to be one of the boys. The word of the Lord has said that Jacob will be blessed over Esau. And what happens at this turn in verse 33 is that Isaac, who has been resisting the word of the Lord his whole life, the life of his sons, he says, he will be blessed. He has this realization. I've done everything. I've been doing the same thing that Rebecca's doing. She's been pushing Jacob forward. I've been pushing Esau forward. I intended to bless him. I intended to take things into my own hands, just like my grandfather Abraham with Hagar, just like, uh, just like happens for generations further. But he says, I'm relenting. I surrender. I see now that God is doing something that I don't understand, that I'm not in control of. And he says, he will be blessed. And the application for us is that we have to submit to God's word. What he says, no matter what our circumstances, no matter how we think things are going to go, what we think the priority should be, you know, it, it kind of made sense, this primogeniture system to, to, to care for the family by giving a larger inheritance and the blessing to the first son. It's an efficient way to do things. It, it's a way that makes sense, but God is intervening into the story and he's saying, this is what I'm going to do. This is what Martin Luther says when he talks about submission to the word. He says, the Bible is alive. It speaks to me. It has feet. It runs after me. It has hands. It lays hold of me. It's about surrendering. It's about uh, recognizing that we, when we wrestle with God, he's always going to win. But that begs the question, how can it be? How can it be that God chooses Jacob? How can it be that God blesses him, that he gives him these promises? I mean, look at who he is. As I said before, it's clear the narrator of Genesis prefers Esau over Jacob as well. He's soft. He's deceptive. He's a thief. He's wicked. Think about further in the story when he's angry at his uncle Laban at having tricked him into marrying Leah instead of Rachel. And he's irate. And then he realizes, oh, that's me. I'm a liar. I did what I, I did this awful thing to try and, and chase the blessing. How can it be that he gets the blessing? How can it be that his father says, yes, the older will serve the younger. He will be blessed. Well, the scripture teaches us there's a true firstborn, but there's a greater firstborn. The greater Jacob, the one that, all of this is pointing to Jesus is God's firstborn and he is given for us. Colossians one says it like this. The son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation for in him, all things were created things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, 
and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. And this firstborn, God's only begotten son, he dressed up like us. He took on flesh. He took on uh, a disguise, essentially, as it were, in order to take our curse and give us his blessing. The firstborn became accursed. He, he takes on that curse that finishes all the plagues in Egypt, the plague of the firstborn, where uh, the only option was a dead lamb in the household or a dead firstborn son. He becomes the lamb that is substituted for us. And what does the scripture say about us because of this? Well, Hebrews 12 has an interesting picture. Verse 22 says, But you have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. You have come to thousands upon thousands of angels in joyful assembly to the church of the firstborn, whose names are written in heaven. You have come to God, the judge of all, to the spirits of the righteous made perfect. What the scripture says is, in Christ, we are the church of the firstborn. There are no second bests. There are no, uh, there are no subservient ones. All are given his place. What Colossians said about him, what he deserves, who he is, that's how Jacob is blessed. It's not because Jacob had the right person. I mean, his name gets changed to Israel ultimately, and God says to Israel when they are in the desert, he says, I didn't choose you because you were the best among the nations. You were the brightest. You were the boldest. I chose you precisely because you were not. To show the world that I'm the God who works miracles, that I'm the God who takes the things that are not and makes them, I say it, and they are. This is who Jesus is and what he's done for us. The mechanism, just quickly, there's a very poignant picture of how Jesus does this. You see, when Rebecca is plotting this scheme with Jacob, Jacob gets worried. And he says to his mother, mom, what happens if he finds me out? What happens if he feels my arms and realizes it's just goat skin? And then he curses me for trying to steal from my brother. What will I do? We're, we're doing all of this to get his blessing. What happens if he curses me? In Genesis chapter 27, verse 13, Rebecca says, Jacob, that happens, let your curse fall on me. And here we see that Christ is not just the greater Jacob, the greater Esau, the, the true firstborn, but he's also the greater Rebecca. Because that's just a mother saying to a son, I love you so much. If something bad happens to you, I would rather it happen to me than you. But, but Jesus, when he says, let your curse fall on me, it's a curse he has no pardon. When he takes that and offers us his blessing, he is doing an infinitely greater thing than just this picture. That's what the story is pointing to. The thing that we're chasing is only found in him. 
the praise of the praiseworthy, all the other places we are going to try and get blessing. It's only available in him. He's the only one who can know us all the way down, see all the flaws, all the dysfunction, all the brokenness, and still love us to the skies because of what he's done, because he took our curse. Let's thank him. God, we're so grateful for time spent in your word, for these stories that point us to your heart, that show us who you are. God, I pray that you would help us too to find ourselves. Um, it's so it's so helpful uh, that Jacob is, is such a messed up fellow. I think it's easier sometimes for us to say, oh, I, I see myself there and I want you to work in my life. I pray that you would help us to see clearly that it's only in your son that we can find the things that we're pursuing. Help us, God, for the places we need to tear down other idols and turn to him. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.